Hi guys, and welcome back to Moody, a true crime podcast. I'm Tamara, and this week, this episode is going to be a little bit different for a couple of reasons. The first being that this is a multiple mini Moody. This is where I'm going to do a couple of cases, normally three, that are pretty small. Too short to put on one episode by themselves. So I'm doing three at once, and I just think that they still deserve to be on the podcast. Um, Because, you know, even though they're not huge cases, they're still cases and, you know, people were still murdered and they still deserve a spot on this podcast. And the second reason is that I am doing it alone. I'm sure you could tell that Azriel is not in the background talking, but you might hear a cat and I'm sorry about that. You might hear my kids. I'm also sorry about that. But I'm doing this episode alone. I can't confirm if I'm doing future episodes alone, but this one needed to be recorded and unfortunately, Azriela just couldn't show up to help record. So you're having two episodes of mine back to back. They might end up being just mine later on, but I'm not sure. Obviously that will be something that will be updated later. So this first case is the murder of Shirley Slay. This is a really short one. There's not a lot of detail on it and it gets pretty quick and right to the point. She was 27 and her ex-boyfriend, Robert Allen Gaddis, shot her between the eyes and killed her on May 10th, 1990, in what he called a fit of rage. He admitted it to police, but told them that the gun went off accidentally. He was sentenced to death on October 29th of 1992. This next case is the murder of Teresa Irene Williams. On the morning of March 23rd, 2000, a maintenance worker by the name of Stephen Butler saw Teresa's two children, ages two and four, playing at the courtyard outside of their apartment complex. He told the kids to stay away from the street until their mother came back. It's kind of sad that they're two and four and they're outside playing alone. That same morning, Teresa and her sister, Tawana Ricks, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's T-A-W-A-N-A, so I think it's Tawana, were supposed to go shopping together, and when she didn't show up, Tawana called her, and when she didn't answer, she went straight to her house. The same time she was knocking, their uncle showed up to deliver furniture and he also became extremely concerned about her not opening the door. They found Stephen, the maintenance worker, and begged him to open the door. Once inside, they found Teresa's badly beaten and bloody body underneath a blanket with a bike on top of her. Teresa was bleeding from her nose and a cord was wrapped around her neck. She was not breathing and when police got there, she was pronounced dead at the scene. An autopsy later revealed that she was beaten, strangled, and cut and the autopsy also revealed that she was pregnant, but the baby had died as a result of her death. Milton E. Taylor was immediately identified as a suspect after witnesses say they saw him around the complex on the morning of March 23rd. On March 25th, 2000, a tip was sent to police about Milton's whereabouts. Police arrested Milton on an outstanding bench warrant, knowing full well he was wanted for questioning for Teresa's murder. While being questioned, a detective searched Milton's jacket and found a folded up piece of paper. He set it on the table, and when another detective came in, she read it, and it was a confession. She removed the confession so it could be included into evidence. This provided enough to get a search warrant for Milton's car, where they found a 13-inch knife wrapped in a blood-stained shirt. The blood matched Teresa's, and during the investigation, it was found that Milton's current girlfriend gave him an ultimatum. Either end all contact with Teresa or lose his girlfriend as a girlfriend. 
Milton went to see Teresa in order to end contact with her and killed her in the process. And he said it was an accident, but I don't know how you accidentally strangle and beat someone. And then I don't know why, if it was an accident, you would have covered her with a bike. But some people will say anything. On March 31st, 2001, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. This last case is about the murderer Luis Cabrera. I think his last name is pronounced Cabrera. On January 5th, 1995, a burned body was found in a dumpster in Willingboro, New Jersey. Two years later, it was established that the victim's name was Fondador Otero, an acquaintance of Luis's father. Luis was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of first-degree burglary, and one count of conspiracy. Luis did not testify at trial, but his co-defendant, Luis Reyes, did. Reyes testified that the day before the killing, Luis told Reyes that his dad had, quote, a problem with Otero and that Luis Cabrera was going to kill Otero. Cabrera solicited Reyes' help, and I'm calling them by their last names because both of their first names are Luis, so Luis Cabrera is the murderer and Luis Reyes was his friend. Cabrera solicited Reyes' help with the murder, and he reluctantly agreed. The next night, the two men drove to Otero's house. Cabrera kicked down the front door and immediately started, started accusing Otero of talking to the police and, quote, doing Cabrera's father wrong. Cabrera then told Reyes to hold Otero down. While Otero was being held down, Cabrera held a plastic bag around Otero's head until he suffocated. Luis Cabrera and Luis Reyes then put Otero's body into Otero's truck and drove to New Jersey. They abandoned the truck, threw Otero's body into a dumpster, and then lit him on fire. Oh, yeah, so this is where this part gets a little bit confusing when I was researching. He murders two more people, but it says he was apparently arrested on the murder of Otero, and this is like what I could find. It says, near the end of the trial, the court conferred with counsel about jury instructions. The court did not accept either side's testimonies, so Luis Cabrera and also Luis Reyes. They both testified and they did not accept either side. Um, and instead, the court gave a modified version of the events and testimony. I didn't quite understand. It seemed a lot like court jargon. So that's technically how I took the wording, was that they listened to both their sides of the story, but then kind of instructed the jury not to listen to it, and instead they came up with their own. I'm not entirely sure how that happened. That's just what I read. The jury found Cabrera guilty on all charges, and after the penalty hearing, the trial court sentenced him to life in prison. Now, this happened in 1995. However, I don't know when he was caught for that murder, because if he was sentenced to life in prison, there's no way he would have gotten out, because on January 21st, 1996... A pedestrian discovered the bodies of two teenage boys. I wasn't sure how old they were because I couldn't find their ages. I'm assuming they never released it or the court documents never stated um, or were never put online. Their names were Brandon Saunders and Vaughn Rowe, and they found them in a wooded area of Rockford Park. So that's why this timeline is a little bit confusing. I guess that the trials were put back to back. I don't know what year he was sentenced or anything like that but i'm assuming he was charged with all three murders around the same time the victims appear to have been killed and then dragged to the location in the woods and then covered in a maroon bed sheet 
Both victims had been shot in the back of the head, and Roe had also been beaten and had injuries to his spleen, liver, and left kidney. Police eventually named Luis Cabrera as a suspect. Several items of evidence linked Luis to the victims. Within a week of the murders, he went to a store and returned a pager that belonged to Saunders. I think the the store like specialized in um, pagers. And so he was like going there to return it because he ended up buying um, his own pager at the same time that he was returning it. That's how they linked this to him. Well, it's one of the ways they linked it to him. Luis would later tell police that he found the pager on the ground near his father's house. So his father comes into play a lot. Police recovered a watch that had the home phone number of Luis Cabrera's father programmed into it. When police searched Saunders' bedroom, they found an ISS service system card written on it was 434-6154-BIG-LU. Luis Cabrera and Luis Reyes both worked at ISS. Some people knew Cabrera as Big Louie and Reyes as Little Louie. Cabrera was indicted on... Indicted? 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 I think it's indicted. On two counts of first-degree murder two counts of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and two counts of conspiracy in the first degree in December of 1999, nearly four years after the homicides. So the state sought the death penalty, and at the trial, Donna Ashwell, Cabrera's neighbor, testified that she heard an argument in the common basement one Saturday night in January of 1996, sometime before 9.30 or 10. Um, so I'm assuming a common basement means that they lived in like a duplex or um, like a condo or an apartment that had a basement that everybody shared. She recognized Cabrera's voice and then heard a loud crash. Donna went to the basement door and saw Reyes who said they would leave. Cabrera apologized to her later that night about them making so much noise. Cabrera's wife testified that she and Luis married in December of 1994 and lived together until October of 1995. She believes Luis moved out of the apartment in the fall of 1996 and moved in with his father. She testified that they owned a set of burgundy sheets that she left with Luis. Which, burgundy is just another word for maroon, essentially. In April of 1997, Detective Lemon seized a maroon bed sheet from the basement of Luis's father's house where Luis slept. An FBI forensic examiner testified that the flat sheet that covered the bodies appeared to match the fitted sheet found in Luis's room. An ATF firearms and tool marks examiner and analyzed the ballistics evidence, comparing the bullets found in the victim's bodies to a handgun that was owned by Luis's father and seized from the Cabrera residence. The ATF examiner testified that the bullet recovered from Rose's body was fired from Cabrera's gun. Detective Lemon also seized several belts from Luis's residence in April of 1997. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but I believe it's Malika. Mathis testified at trial that she and Luis Cabrera, whom she met in 1994, had had sporadic sexual encounters over several years. Now, if you remember, Cabrera was married in December of 1994. So 1994 through several years means he was cheating on his wife the whole time. She testified that she was familiar with his clothing style and identified a distinctive belt that was seized from his house that he likely would have worn. She did state, however, that she did not recognize that specific belt. Dr. Richard Callery testified that during the January 1996 autopsy of Roe, he observed an injury that resembled the imprint of a belt buckle. Two weeks before his testimony in 2001, 
Dr. Callery measured one of the belts and compared it to the injury found on Roe, and he said that the belt was consistent with, with the one that might have caused the injuries. A man by the name of Keith Powell, who was friends with Saunders and Roe, came forward to testify about the night Roe and Saunders were murdered, and he stated that they had all gotten high that night, and Saunders received a page from someone. There's Keith Powell, Brandon Saunders, Von Roe, and a girl named Kim, which I don't remember her last name, I'm sorry. They were all at Saunders' house, and Keith, Kim, and I guess Vaughn left. Powell left between 10.30 and 11.30. The state threw out Powell's testimony because of credibility issues. He stated that he was frequently high during that time of his life and couldn't remember if he saw Roe and Saunders on Friday or Saturday night. So, the jury found Luis Cabrera guilty of all charges, and he was sentenced to death on both counts of murder. That's everything. I mean, we can talk about it, but it's just me. It's really sad that I feel like these cases don't really get on a lot of true crime shows. Um, I've noticed that most true crime shows start doing, like, really big and well-known cases where there's, like, a lot of victims... And everybody has heard them before. Um, So I just wanted to do some that I've never even heard of. I've never heard any news coverage on them. I've never heard of these people. But their lives still mattered. And their deaths still deserve um, recognition. Um, One thing that I did want to state that I forgot to do in the beginning was that uh, these all took place in Delaware. Um, The last one with Luis Cabrera. One of them, I believe, took place in New York or New Jersey. The other ones took place in Delaware. That's all I have. I'm sorry that this episode was, like, really to the point, not very comedic and not very long, and just me talking. But yeah, so some life updates. I don't really have very much. I have started a Depop where I'm selling my clothes, my kids' clothes, and um, my fiance's clothes that we just don't wear anymore, that we grew out of, that, you know, we don't want to just let sit in our storage, I guess. Um, we want them to be used by somebody, so I think that the best way is to make some money off of it, um, just because I don't have a job. If you guys want to check out my Depop, it's under my first and last name, but the at is small honeybee. So that's S-M-A-L-L-H-O-N-E-Y-B-E-E. Or you can look up my name, which is Tamara Davis, and that should be in the show notes. Um, I only have one listing up (laughs) as of right now. I am working on getting more up. I do have a lot going on. I have two kids, a podcast, a house, and a fiancé, and my mother's Etsy shop that I run. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope that if you guys have any questions, you will email us or message us directly on the Instagram. Um, you can do that uh, at moody underscore a true crime podcast on Instagram. You can send us an email at moodypodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to follow the Twitter, it is moody underscore crime. We have not updated on it. I'm so sorry about that. But I will start up loading onto there. A lot of it's going to be similar to um, our Instagram, but Twitter, you know, some people don't use Instagram and some people don't use Twitter. So you can follow us on either one. Please rate, review, and subscribe. 
that would be great um really helps the podcast out and tell your friends about us tell friends family anybody um you can share our instagram on your instagram you know it's great to get people talking about us or if you know anybody that wants to listen just let them know um again thank you so much for listening i'm tamara this was moody a true crime podcast have a good day good night good morning all right guys thank you so much bye